Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Order Up, the podcast from the National Restaurant Association. I'm your host, Carly McBride. Before we dive in, here's your reminder. Make sure you're subscribed to Order Up on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast platform so you catch all our latest releases right in your feed. Recently, the National Restaurant Association hosted a series of webinars focused on the key topics most relevant to restaurant operators today. This four-part webinar series focused on topics such as diversity, emergency preparedness, policy and tax credits, and food donations. The webinar series garnered more than 1,300 registrations and was applauded as an incredible resource by attendees. Today on the podcast, we'd like to share some of the top insights from those webinars. These are just snippets, but be sure to check out the show notes for links to access all four webinars and the incredible resources that come with them, all available on demand. These webinars are free for the industry, and we hope you check them out. Now, we're going to hear a piece from our webinar on diversity, equity, and inclusion. First, you'll hear from Jerry Fernandez, president and founder of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance, also known as MFHA. Jerry discusses Elevate, which is described as a menu for change and the DEI framework for the restaurant industry. This invaluable resource is linked in today's show notes, so be sure to check it out. Then you'll hear from Mike Axiotis, president and CEO of Lehigh Valley Restaurant Group. Mike discusses how he's put various diversity and inclusion practices into action across the company's Red Robin restaurants. Let's hear what they have to say. We came up with a solution. So if all these things are necessary, how do we help the industry? So we had looked at all the companies that had the best DEI efforts out there, collected all those best practices from companies who are like best in class on diversity, with Diversity Inc. and with Fortune Magazine. We put those solutions and tools and resources into one easy to access tool. And it provides a step-by-step, a roadmap, if you will, how to go from Boston to L.A., and with all the gas stops along the way. And so we wanted to make it easier for the industry to be able to do this. Mike's a good example. We talked to Mike. He said, hey, I love the idea. And then we got started with introducing his team to elevate the framework for DEI all around how are we going to drive talent to our businesses, our restaurants? How are we going to hire in today's marketplace? So the four things I'm going to say are going to be a theme we go through, and I'm going to turn it over to Mike. Culture change matters, and it's going to, that's how it's going to impact the hiring. If you have a poor culture and people don't feel valued, respected, and heard, they come to work for you, they ain't going to stay. So hiring great people doesn't do good if you don't have a culture for they stay. Secondly, as I said before, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or you can call it inclusion and diversity, you can call it belonging and diversity, it matters. And the hiring has to be inclusive. So you've got to be purposeful in reaching out. Third, you got to engage your team. They got to feel like they got skin in the game and that they can actually see their contributions, their recommendations being implemented by management. And then last, you need CEO leadership on this. It's critical for success. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over and say, Mike, you've been working with us for the last couple of years now. Tell us a little bit about how Red Robin or the High Valley Restaurant Group is working in this space. Great. Jerry, thank you so much. And uh, that's a great intro. And I appreciate the partnership that Lehigh Valley Restaurant Group has forged with MFHA over several years. 
Jerry's been a great partner, not only to Lea Valley Restaurant Group, but to the Pennsylvania Restaurant and Lodging Association. He's done many, many presentations at the state level at our annual meetings. And that's where I got to know Jerry very well. And he's very inspiring. And he motivated us several years ago to get involved. And culturally, I really believe that our company has always been dedicated to people first. And we started moving towards diversity about a decade ago and ensured that our general manager and our leadership team had a great representation of women leaders and diversity, but it just wasn't enough. And our team members wanted to see more. So we periodically pulse our team members and we look for feedback from them. And that was coming up more and more. So we knew we needed to do more. And it just never seems like it's enough. But the Elevate partnership began with a cultural assessment of our enterprise and identified gaps. And with Jerry's team, we looked at those gaps and we put our team together to discuss how we could start tackling those areas and closing those gaps. But before we did that, we assembled a committee. So we now have a DEI committee in our restaurant group that began back in uh, the summer of 2020. And it started off with a very small representation of our team. It was like pulling teeth kind of to get people to join the committee because they really weren't understanding of what it was. Gee, do I trust them? Gee, are they really serious about this? Do they really mean it? Or are they just checking off a box? So it took some time for us to really develop a strong core nucleus of people that were really committed to it. And today, I'm proud to say that we have 15 out of our 20 restaurants that are represented on a regular basis to our monthly meetings. We've developed a council and an officer group. There's a chair and a co-chair and a secretary elected positions by the team. We developed a mission statement and our mission statement says our mission is to promote and celebrate the uniqueness that strengthens our team by providing a safe environment supported by the burger love culture of Lea Valley Restaurant Group while simultaneously giving team members the ability to be comfortable and thrive while being true to their authentic selves. That's our mission statement. It's read at every meeting. Every meeting we have, every uh, council meeting we have, every GM meeting we have, we cover uh, DEI and the mission statement is shared as well as our vision. Our vision is quite simple. It's differences make us stronger. As you can see on the slide there, we also developed a logo. Our council has its own dedicated logo that was designed by the council. And uh, it's got a great representation of who we are, all the different ethnicities and all the different areas and colors. And it's got a burger, you know, with the top and bottom bun. And it has our vision statement sandwiched in between there. Differences make us stronger. So that's a very prominent logo that is donned on our employee shirts. Next, we'll hear from Sheldon Suga, Vice President and Managing Director of Hawks Key Resort in the Florida Keys. Hawks Key was decimated by Category 4 Hurricane Irma in 2017, causing $65 million in damages. 
Sheldon discusses how they managed the entire emergency before, during, and after. He also discusses another incredible resource the National Restaurant Association provides called the Always Ready Natural Disasters Guide. We've also linked that in today's show notes, so be sure to check it out and expect the unexpected. Now, let's hear from Sheldon. So one of the things that we talk about or that's emphasized every year is to attend an area hurricane meeting or storm meeting. A lot of people all know another meeting, but uh, it's imperative that someone from your business attends that meeting. And the thing is that the reason for it is information changes, meaning who you communicate with, their phone numbers may have changed. They may have, you know, here in the county, they built a new communication center. So that's a different location. So a lot of things change and also rules change. They put a permit requirement out now so that all residents require stickers on their vehicles in order to return. The second part is that businesses wishing to be classified as essential services again, need to have special permits and allows them to get back to properties early. So it's just really important to have someone attend those meetings. And then the make sure that even all your contact information, not just with the outside world, but contact information of your employees, make sure that everything's up to date. How are you going to get hold of them? How are they going to get hold of you? What's your emergency contact phone number? Again, We'll get into this in a little bit. Don't use your cell phone as your primary contact. Quick question for you. Who is on your contact list? So, of course, we have ownership and we have all the senior management team that are on emergency contact. But also, in addition to that, we have who's head of emergency management in the area. Who's the fire chief? The sheriff's phone number. Let's say you deal with Cisco. Do you have their phone number? Do you have this? Again, you have to take into account what happens afterwards because things don't work. Things aren't around, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Again, what are the plans that your staff have? Where are they going to go? If there's an evacuation order, don't have them turn to you. You can't have all the answers. So where are they going to go to? Is there a shelter? Where is the shelter located? Do they have family? located in a safe area. So those are the things that they need to prepare for. Not, okay, we're going to close the restaurant in an hour and they go, well, where am I supposed to go? Well, it's too late. You have no way to recover at that point in time. The next point is insurance coverage. Remake sure that your insurance is that you get replacement at current code. So many buildings, for example, are grandfathered. And as codes changed, of course, they don't have to upgrade. But if that building needs to be replaced, all of a sudden, everything kicks in. An example is we had two buildings that were destroyed that had to be replaced. They were ground-level buildings. They've since had to be built up at nine and a half feet above flood level, not just sea level, but above flood. So who pays all those costs? You certainly don't want to. Initially, we said maybe a one and a half, two million dollar bill. Well, it turned into a six million dollar bill. And luckily, it was all by the insurance company. Sheldon, can I ask you some yes. more um, questions sure. about insurance? The 
replacement of current code is a really critical one. What were your basic insurances that you had to have? And did you have any signage insurance or wind damage insurance or any additional ones? Well, you have to have two. Yeah. Down here, you have to have, well, you have to actually have three. You have to have wind is a critical. Then you have to have flood. And of course, you're all your replacement property. But the biggest thing, the difference is flood usually doesn't cover you that much. What's really damaging is wind-driven rain. And so you have to make sure that, that your insurance is all in place even before a hurricane season starts. Make sure that everything's in place. And did you have anything like mold insurance or? Yes, that's all covered. That's, that's all, all covered, covered. under under okay. one of those two plans. Gotcha. Great. And now that you bring up mold, we were able to get back to the property three days after the storm that we were allowed to fly back in there. And we couldn't drive in, so we had to fly in by helicopter. But when we walked into the building, each building, mold was covering the ceiling and the walls already. I mean, in high humidity, of course, no air conditioning, nothing. It, it just took over rapidly. And of course, the fuel in the generator had already run out. So again, nobody on site. So you have to assume for the worst. Also, secure all your information away from your property. Don't keep valuable information. You know, if you can store it in the cloud, it's probably the best way. And so that, again, you may take a laptop or a desktop with you when you evacuate, but be able to get all your information. I can't overemphasize all your information. And you keep hearing about, going back to insurance just a little bit, is video is so important. Just take video of everything. It can't be disputed by your insurance company. You can date your videos, you can show and talk through them to show everything that you have. You're talking before damage hits, takes Before video. damage, right. Saying this was here. So there's no disputing, oh, you didn't have that in place. Oh, no, I had that in place. So again, have everything videoed and then store it somewhere. Don't just store it on property. And talk to your state restaurant association. You know, in the state of Florida, it's combined uh, the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association. And one of the things is that because of the state we're in and because of how big an organization they are, they actually have a seat at the Emergency Operations Center up in Tallahassee. So it's really important that you, know, you take a look and see what kind of materials they have. There is valuable information out there. And again, it's not valuable during a uh, situation. It's valuable beforehand to help you prepare and understand what's going to happen. The other thing is establish a relationship you know, with a disaster restoration company. And don't get suckered in by companies that say, oh, you have to have us on retainer, whatever. There are a lot of companies out there that don't require a retainer, but they will gather your information and everything will kick in and at least you're at the top of their list. But it's not necessary to be paying these companies money up front. That's a good point too. How do you line up a disaster restoration service and get to the top of their list? Were you an essential building? That Yes, they, they saw us as an essential building because we could house people later on. So that's how they, we got classified as essential. We could also provide food service, possibility, but we didn't expect the 
the extent of the damage that the storm created. But that would um, apply to restaurants in other parts of the country. Absolutely. You know, the point to bring up is that you have to prepare for the worst. Don't assume that you're going to go back and see your restaurant standing in the condition you left it in. Don't expect to go and find things. You know, we've talked uh, in prep for this is that cell phones will probably not work. So how are you going to communicate? You know, satellite phones are expensive because the problem is that the minutes expire every year. But if you can do it, a satellite phone is a great instrument to have. And assume the other things to assume is imagine going away on a camping trip to a remote area and all you have is what you're going to bring in, meaning where are you going to sleep? There's nothing open to eat, so you better bring your own food and for how long. Same thing with water. Same thing with toilet facilities. You know, so I think the best analogy is to imagine you're going to a remote area on a camping trip and whatever you've got is all you're going to have. Make a difference on policy that affects your business. Join us June 19th through 21st, 2023 in Washington, D.C. for our public affairs conference and be a part of the industry's largest grassroots advocacy event. Every segment from quick service to fine dining is represented and includes large international brands to smaller independent operators who want to advocate for our industry. In addition to meeting with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, conference attendees will hear from top political speakers and celebrate the industry at networking events. To register, visit the link in our show notes. Next, we're talking about a very important topic for restaurants, food donations. This webinar was packed with experts from Starbucks, Feeding America, and Feed the Fridge. First, we'll hear from Jason Hatcher, account manager from Feeding America. Jason will touch on the most commonly utilized food donation models among restaurants. Sarah Freed from Starbucks will talk about their partnership with Feeding America and how Starbucks stores utilize these donation models across their stores. And we'll also hear from Mark Buecher, founder of Feed the Fridge, about how his business partners with restaurants and third-party delivery companies to feed hungry individuals in the Washington, D.C. area. We'll hear from Feeding America first. I want to talk to you just briefly about the various programs, because not everything is going to line up with your structure, like I mentioned before. Of course, there are different models, but these are generally the three models that we see. The top one, the food bank pickup model. Our food bank network has fleets of vehicles. We work with them to build capacity for refrigerated vans, all the way up to tractor trailers to pick up food from distribution centers or local restaurants. This is likely going to be the scenario where you live in day to day, where you need a courier or just a local volunteer helping that agency to pick up from you. This is the most common form of it. A little less common, but also reiterating on the fact that let's not waste any food as well. Uh, If we can't donate food to its highest and best use, a discounted food program is very common to mark down. And I know Starbucks has gone through a little testing on that, but to tee up kind of the big unveiling of 
the backhaul third-party logistics program, and this is to tee up a little bit of what Sarah will talk about with Starbucks later, we have innovated with Starbucks so that existing logistics are in place. Trucks that are already delivering food to their stores and likely to your restaurants to figure out a way to consolidate that food, be more efficient and use the drivers who are already there to retrieve donations. This isn't going to work for everyone, but we've been able to scale a program that's truly unique by leveraging backhaul logistics in this way. So how do the food models work at Starbucks, the ones that Jason went through? For all of these models, the food donations are prepared by Starbucks partners or our employees. They pull items with today's date and package them for donations we picked up. About 30% of Starbucks stores, so about 3,000, are on the food bank pickup model. So this means that a local food banker agency picks up the food donations periodically throughout the week and distributes that food to their clients. We're also using the Meal Connect app that Jason mentioned to be able to track and measure impact from those donations. The second model is the discounted food donation program. We currently don't have any Starbucks stores in the U.S. that are on the discounted food donation program, simply because the other models we found to be more efficient and effective. But we do see this program internationally in places like the U.K., China, Mexico, and our Starbucks stores there because we found that this is a particularly effective food waste reduction strategy for markets where there may not be food donation-friendly policies. And finally, the backhaul logistics model, which is what I'll dive into today. This model is at approximately 70%, so um, it's between six and 7,000 of our U.S. company-owned stores, where delivery drivers who are going to the store to drop off supplies for the next day are actually picking up those items that have been packaged for donation returning them all to a central site for consolidation, and then delivering it in one trip to the local food banker agency for distribution to clients. One thing that I personally love about this model is that it takes that burden of food rescue off of the food banks and opens up their capacity to do what they do best, which is serving the community. We've found the backhaul logistics model to be really cost efficient as it utilizes drivers that are already on the road, yet there's also a price to it for the extra drop-offs. So when that food is donated, Starbucks receives a tax benefit from the U.S. enhanced tax deduction, and the company is committed to reinvesting that full tax benefit back into hunger relief in communities, which more than covers the cost of those deliveries. And then any surplus that isn't needed to cover the cost of rescue, the company is committed to reinvesting that full amount back into grants, into capacity building, and other hunger relief efforts in those communities. To feed the fridge is a take on the community fridge model that's been out and about around the country for years, where in LA and Seattle and Portland, folk volunteers will place residential refrigerators on street corners or in merchants' lobbies, and they'll stock them with granola bars and waters and some milk or some juice or some candy or some fresh vegetables. This model has its limitations. It certainly gives health departments some heartburn. We've taken that and applied all the training that I've learned and we've learned in ServeSafe and everything we need and learn when we operate our restaurants. And we've applied this to our approach to solving hunger, which is let's create our own community fridge model. Let's use commercially available and commercially designed refrigerators like soda beverage vending machines 
that are made to be outside year-round and year-round temperatures and operate. And let's raise money and purchase meals prepared at local restaurants to stock local fridges that provide meals for those community members who are hungry. Feed the Fridge has no qualifications. If you're hungry, you get a meal. There's no signups. There's no permissions. There's no questions asked. This is a way for restaurants to turn addressing hunger or even better, being part of your community. A lot of people say they are community. They want to be community. We all respond when asked for gift cards to the local high school dance or local church fundraiser. Now's our opportunity to really be impactful in the community and also earn some money. Doesn't need to be for free. Feed the Fridge creates a model where folks and people and corporations donate money. Feed the Fridge contracts with restaurants to purchase these meals. These meals are picked up by drivers through our partnerships with DoorDash and Uber Eats. They get picked up and they get brought to our local Fridge locations every day, five days a week. And finally, we're talking about restaurant tax credits. Now you'll hear from Pete Cortez, COO of La Familia Cortez Restaurants, about how his company has taken advantage of several of these restaurant tax credits. There's a lot of details in these credits, so be sure to check out the full webinar recording for more information. Then we'll hear from Aaron Frazier, Vice President of Public Policy with the National Restaurant Association. Aaron discusses a new resource coming soon that will cover the restaurant tax life cycle and guide restaurants through various tax credits for years to come. We'll hear from Pete first. We're going to talk today about WOTC credits, work opportunity tax credits that are really focused on hiring folks in special categories through state agencies. We're going to talk about empowerment zones, qualified business income, and then the FICA tip credit, which probably arguably is one of the biggest and most important that we have in our industry and one that we have to continue to fight for is we see across the country a lot of municipalities and states, you know, wanting to eliminate the tip credit altogether. And so it's really important that we work together to make sure that all of these credits remain available to us as an industry. So next up, I want to kind of give a preview of an upcoming resource that we're going to be sharing with state restaurant associations and with the National Restaurant Association is to just provide a little bit more comprehensive education about the things we're talking about. We know that there are different abilities for restaurants to tap into current federal tax programs when they do very common things like hiring employees, paying employees, creating a menu, enhancing their off-premise delivery systems. There are There's a tax credit for almost any different type of action that a restaurant takes on. Kind of like the old Apple commercials, there's an app for that. There's going to be a credit for a lot of the things that the average restaurant is doing because we're such a kinetic industry touching so many different types of people, places, and things. What we want to do is build out this little circle chart so you can click on all these different buttons and then it'll go down to some insights and saying, here's what this program looks like. Here's the value of the credit. Here's an example of how a restaurant would use it. And then even if it would be interesting to have further resources of saying, if you're interested in this, now go on to the next place in this cycle. So that's coming. We want to make sure that restaurants are armed to the teeth when it comes to the federal tax code in ways that they can start building up more resources, keeping more cash on hand, especially as we kind of slowly move into this recessionary economy that's seeing more and more consumers, not necessarily, you know, we're still in this, uh, let's 
eat out, let's enjoy some of the things that we missed for uh, a year or two due to the pandemic. But uh, we want to make sure that restaurants are keeping that cash on hand. It's also a sneaky way for us and for me as a restaurant advocate on Capitol Hill that seeing a lot of these programs begin to expire, it's a way for us to build a narrative to say restaurants need this program. They need this hiring incentive. They need empowerment zones. They need that small business deduction to keep cash on hand, to hire the next person, to promote the next person, and to build out a new facility in their community. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll take some time to review these webinars in full. As we mentioned, the full recordings and related resources are all available on demand. You can find that link in today's show notes. Did you know? The National Restaurant Association produces and hosts several webinars each month to serve and grow the industry. Topics ranging from hiring and workforce, food safety, DE&I, and the most relevant policy topics for restaurants. All previous webinars are also available for on-demand viewing. To learn more about upcoming and recorded webinars, please visit restaurant.org slash events slash learning. Thanks so much for listening to Order Up, the podcast from the National Restaurant Association. Follow us on your favorite podcast player and find out more at restaurant.org slash podcasts. Episode produced by Dante32.